0: Hey, this is Ross Baton with Roleplay and Public Radio. This is Game Designers Workshop. I'm here with uh, Jeff Barber over the Miracles of Voice internet chat uh, Skype uh, to have an update about Upwind, uh, which is on Kickstarter right now, if you're listening to this, between uh, October and uh, I think it ends November 11th, uh, 2016. Uh, So I've already interviewed Jeff before about the game design process and about the creation of Upwind. Upwind. uh, high fan I say high fantasy um, because i 'm not sure what other genre
1: yeah I, I, I wonder about it. that um, lots of people describe it different ways um, but i i i guess the the, the quickest pitch in that regard I, I tell people Tesla punk yeah maybe
0: yeah Tesla but okay. fantasy too definitely fantasy
1: yeah i mean there's there's swords and and there 's monsters yeah um, but technology uh, well albeit magical technology drives the drives the setting, but Um, there is, there is an elemental magic to it. Uh,
0: so yeah, we, uh, so you, if you go back and uh, I'll link to the original interview in the show notes, uh, so you can hear a little more about the very basics of Upwind. Uh, but since then that interview was in March, I think. And, uh, since then, uh, I've played tested the game, the game, uh, you play tested the game more, you've revised it, and also, uh, you've been working on the Kickstarter, uh, since then. So, a lot of stuff to talk oh, about. Oh, yeah, lots of
1: work on the Kickstarter. <laughs> yeah. Uh,
0: so there's a lot to talk about in terms of game design and Kickstart planning and promotion, all that fun stuff. Uh, by the way, this episode is sponsored by Biohazard Games and Jeff Barber because, uh, I'm working with him to help develop the game, uh, or at least in terms of, um, there's a stretch goal that I will write an adventure for it. So in the interest of uh, full disclosure, so uh, but I really do believe in upwind. It's been a a really fun game and I'm uh, happy to uh, associate RPPR with upwind. So, well, you
1: guys have been awesome about everything and and we wouldn't have gotten nearly this far without your help. So we're very appreciative.
0: Uh, Thank you. Um, So uh, first off, let's talk about the game design, how uh, we also have an actual play of you running the game for some of the RPPR group. Uh, back in March, and um, I've listened to a bit of it, and just already I can tell that things have changed. W- terms, uh, affinities become a potential, for example, uh, rep- uh, for the attribute describing the character's magic uh, trait, or uh, I think I think so. It sounded like there were, there was an infinity deck inside of the potential. Yep. The the terms have been there.
1: My use of them is is evolving. I think a little bit.
0: Yeah, and uh, so. And I know we, when uh, you've listened to the actual plays that I've done of the game, you've like, oh, that's a good idea, or that's interesting. I should, you know, maybe think that into consideration. So having someone else run your game has been a very instructive. It's been process. huge, yeah. yeah. So, uh, yeah, what ha- what has uh, changed about Upwind since you were working on it in March, and what led you to these kind of changes? Well, I guess nothing f- fundamental.
1: I guess we'll just start there. Um, but it's been a-, a wonderful period of refinement um and i think in the end that's uh, sometimes more important um because there's lots of good ideas and uh i just feel like uh the fact that you've run a lot of games that i've been able to actually listen to and i can hear how other people are dealing with the rules are written and other players are playing the game independent of my running it um <laughs> has really helped a, a a lot in understanding how people take the way different things are said and what they do with the the basic core mechanics uh, I think the two biggest things that, um, I can think of off the top of my head that have changed have been how, uh, players participate in, in multiple p- participant plays rather than mm-hmm. plays individually between the, the game master and, and a single player. There are sort of new rules about teamwork, um, and something we call, uh, collective play. And, uh, in terms of, um, sort of the, the core idea of setting outcomes in advance and using them as stakes, I've learned a lot from listening to you run the game because you've done a really good job of thinking of meta ways to to structure those uh, uh outcomes. Not only do they result in sort of narrative elements of the story, but they touch on sort of breaking fourth wall elements of the of the gameplay mm-hmm. and including the success or failure that one character has in the outcomes of of the next bid and I've actually ended up writing a, a few um not so much rules as sort of guidelines or suggestions on how people can do that same sort of thing with with determining their outcomes.
0: Yeah, no, I think that's that's important. And these guidelines, um, I mean, a lot of role playing games uh, have guidelines on how you should play them, and you know what. And these obviously are not ironclad rules because rules here of any RPG is you know reinterpret the rules to however right. you want them to be you know if you don't like a rule change it but cuz you know there is a secret among game designers we don't care if you play the game in a different way than what we intended you know um yeah, I don't know how how secret that is. I think a lot of people shout it to the rooftops, but
1: it, I'm not well, sure what you, hears hears. Well,
0: you you would be surprised. There's always those people who are uh, at least on online forums. I do see a lot of arguments talking about designer's intent and oh, know, sure. like, yeah, and that kind of thing. Um
1: Well, I think even even if someone is trying to follow that intent as closely as they they think they can, um you know, it's it's always going to be open to some level of interpretation because written communication is not perfect. Well, yeah. communication in general is not perfect.
0: Uh yeah, this is this is a good point and one thing that the Upwind definitely doesn't need is a lot of guidelines because it is different than running other role playing games because you know the standard for a role playing game is the increment the incrementalism of uh resolving an action or a scene in that you don't deter like in Upwind you resolve a fight in one you know a given challenge or encounter usually in one play of the cards or a few plays of the cards whereas the standard in an RPG is like does your one sword hit hit the guy and does it inflict damage and if so does that actually kill him or hurt him or wound him or you know and if you know it's like a very detailed flowchart where you repeat processes a lot procedures a lot you have to hit the guy again and again and again with your sword in order to kill him and that that and then moving that that change of pace with upwind and also that giving that players that much potential agency uh or control of the narrative is Requires a lot of adjustment of uh, your thinking as a GM. You have to think more about what the story, what is the story you're trying to tell, and because it's a game, it has to have at least two branches. You have to have at least a good story and a bad story, and the whole challenge of the game is to see which of these stories you're telling.
1: Yeah, and uh, it and it feels like there's a, a requirement of of creativity on the spot. Yeah. That exists in, in that mechanic that isn't necessarily part of a more incremental system. Uh, the rules tell you what the outcome of a die roll for a sword attack is, but in Upwind you're having to create these, the, you know, these Schrödinger outcomes that, that, um, uh, oftentimes require sort of on the fly creativity, which is fun and, and interesting, and it's a great way for the game master and the players to both contribute to the way the story goes, mm-hmm. but it does, definitely keeps you on your toes. Uh,
0: yeah, because, I think, uh, and the guidelines were very helpful even in the early playtest because the, the the first guidelines I read were like don't set the stakes to negate the story or hit you know essentially a dead end if you fail you know which is uh, a common thing in role playing games. Oh, you failed to find the clue. Well, I guess mm-hmm. the scenario is done. We can't right. we can't use that clue to move on to the next scene. And so in Upwind, uh, you can't just say, well, your ship crashes and everyone dies. Unless it's the, unless that's the end of the story, unless you want that to be the end of the story.
1: Right. And and the neat thing is that everyone can actually agree to that if they think that's dramatic and how they want it to go. But you're right. It does, it does make a bit of a challenge. Uh, I ran a, uh, a demo this weekend uh, at a little local convention and uh, caught up myself in my own trap. Um, I gave them. I, I let them negotiate one of the stakes was to essentially capture the bad guy. Mm-hmm. Um, and I realized as we were making the play that this was going to fundamentally change where the story was headed. And they won and, and caught the bad guy. And it was, it was interesting. It was a new ending to the, to the story that hadn't been told before.
0: Yeah. So, no, the, yeah, exactly. And, the, and so it's, a, it's actually kind of, um, as a game master it's it's not necessarily more challenging than running another type of game it's just you have to think differently and you kind of have to plan ahead of, you have to think further along in the story than you normally do as a gm um i think because you know for me what i was thinking when i was running uh my games was like well i guess the challenge is is this going to be this is the story of how the heroes Uh, you know, save the kingdom from a threat, but is this a story where the heroes give up everything or, you know, are traumatized and scarred by the process or do they overcome the odds and do they cut the Gordian knot and defy all odds to, you know, save the day? Uh, Is it, you know, a dark story of tragedy or is it, you know, of grim resolve and sacrifice or is it... Amazing heroism and daring do, and you know, pulp kind of fantasy sort of. Well, thought. I enjoyed listening
1: to your players actually do a little bit of both. Uh, yeah. I, I, I don't want to give away your stories <laughs> in case people are listening, but they did make some choices that were probably more dramatic than might be made in an incremental system, or that really could be made in a, in a single. Mm-hmm. a single instance a single die roll of a of an incremental system for sure.
0: Uh yeah, and exactly and it kind of went back and forth. It wasn't I mean, like one thing I did have in my stories, I did I did plot it out in advance and I did obviously and I kind of like figured out, you know, at this point in the story, I want the players to have to make this hard choice where uh, they have if they want to do if they want the best possible ending there has to be a there hat in order to get the the best ending there has to be some sort of price you know there has to be some mm-hmm. sort of dilemma and that and then and along the way but like you know I didn't want to have so I would have been fine with the ship crashing you know for example uh if it had happened at the finale I would have said this is the final choice if you fail this then your ship crashes everyone dies. Uh but you take out the bad guy with you, and you, you crash mm-hmm. your ship into them. And if you succeed, then your ship barely avoids the barrage and manages to destroy the other ship and you limp back in the port. And that be but I wanted at the end, I didn't want to have that happen fifteen minutes in right. or you know, an hour in of a three-hour game. Um so it's a very interesting um thing to see this and I feel like, um, yeah, adding more guidelines and seeing other people's input uh, definitely seems sounds like a really good idea for game designers. Is to have other game designers, or other you know, experienced people who are experiencing this kind of thing, run games for you because they're not, as you said, communication is not perfect. They're going to perceive it differently than you. Well, uh, I, I, I'll be honest. Uh,
1: when I first contacted you, however long ago that was, almost a couple, almost two years now, um, I. I really—that was my interest. Uh, I hadn't really—I hadn't listened to actual plays much. I'd I'd stumbled onto you guys, was really enjoying it, and I thought, wow, I'm working on this game. Wouldn't it be great if I could hear people that didn't know anything about it try and play it? Mm -hmm. Uh, And um, prior to all of the promotional work we've done and all the intention behind that, it really was just a chance to maybe hear some people that really seem to enjoy playing games play a game, and I was hoping to learn something from it. And, And of course, it turned out to be exactly that uh, very valuable experience but uh, that was really the original reason I I contacted RPPR
0: Uh, yeah and uh, so I think um, if you're listening at home you're working on your own game the lesson is to find reach out and contact uh, yeah, not necessarily, <laughs> you know, because <RPTR, laughs> we only have so many hours in the day available to us. Um, but, uh, other people in your, in your community, people that you, you think over the internet, I mean, there's a lot of great resources for game designers. Now, uh, there are Facebook groups, there are forums, uh, you know, message boards and online social media where you can reach out and contact people and just like, Hey, can you run this and let me know what you think? This kind of extended play test, Uh, and it also establishes—you know—it takes time to establish these kind of ties and contacts, and um, that—that yeah, so that reaching out to other people, even when you're, uh, like a lot of game designers think, okay, I, I make this game in isolation, and then I release it on the world, and then I'm done. Whereas you know, you reached out early on, relatively, you know, when you had a game, more or less you know kind of ready to show to people and you're like hey let's take a look at this and then you know uh going back and you know revising an iteration um so what uh, so even when you showed it to me earlier this year it wasn't even you know 100% done so uh were there any other major changes uh, in terms of the game mechanics or- um not
1: not in terms of the game mechanics lots of lots of little refinements like i said uh, mm-hmm. uh I think anybody who has played, um, anything over the last couple of years, any version of Upwind over the last couple of years would not be surprised by anything in it. Um, oddly, the, the one rule that I struggled the most with, and I still wonder if I need to change, is about how, um, you can help other players accomplish things. Mm-hmm. I, I like what we've settled on. I just need, may need to adjust the numbers a little bit. Um, one of the things that I was, <clears throat> always concerned about um, until your play t- your recent playtest, actually was the frequency of um, player victories versus uh, game master victories. Yeah. And uh, knowing that role-playing games need to be stacked towards the players because in general, in general they tend to be, um, I was trying to adjust that those odds. I, I talked to a guy, an engineer, a friend of mine who built a little spreadsheet program and, and ran the odds. Um, and, uh, we, we came to the conclusion that in the end something was wrong with the spreadsheet because it seemed to be very different than what we were seeing in an actual play. Um, but I was very pleased with how it seemed to come out with you guys. There was a, a lot – you guys do a, a very high density of plays compared to what um, I usually do in my, my playtest groups, which is really helpful because there's a, a lot more opportunity to listen to the mechanics being used. Um, but I was I was very pleased with uh, the way – the distribution as it seemed. Um I did make one change recently uh based on your your uh playtesting.
0: So you know the, the moderator gets um only a single joker as well. <laughs> yeah, uh, I specifically call this out in the last. I think in one of the game sessions where uh just to bring up the the mechanics is the uh the joker when that comes into play, whoever pulls or plays the joker wins that um, it's like an amazing critical success. Uh, so, and then you reshuffle the entire deck and remove the joker from your deck. So every player and the moderator, each, everyone in the game gets one joker per game at most. Uh, but so there's, when there's three players in one game master, there could be theoretically, you know, three jokers versus his one.
1: Right. And so I've actually written in, uh, the recommendation that, that, uh, at four players or more, the moderator keeps both jokers.
0: OK, does uh so they keep two Jokers. Do they shuffle them back in if they're used? Or? No, they die. They die. Uh, at least at this point, they die like okay. the other Jokers, but they've got two against
1: the the four yeah. or, or more. So about or
0: just, a, so it's about a ratio, I guess. Yeah, it
1: was really about just giving not not making it uh, completely overwhelming odds.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, maybe you could have both Jokers in and then if they use both Jokers they could leave one Joker in. So the moderator still always has that threat um, because you reshuffle the entire thing. Uh, yeah. So true. that, that could be a thing because, well, if the players know that the, Oh, you're out of jokers, you know, ha ha ha. So uh, that, that kind of adds to the metagame too. Yeah. It is a fun
1: part of the metagame, especially yeah. when, when they know it's still in there somewhere.
0: Yeah. Uh, I do know. Um, yeah. Because like one of the other mechanics is if a player, Draw if it, it, you know it, once the Joker goes out, everyone involved in that play like shuffles their all their discards, their deck, and their hand in. All they basically start over and draw an entirely new hand. I'll, I'll actually uh, clarify that rule. I know oh, that's really? what
1: you guys are doing it, but in in truth, uh, everybody at the table is supposed to do it.
0: Oh, everyone at the table. Oh,
1: wow. Yeah. So it's even more. So it will flush uh, everyone's hand. Now, the, they won't lose their jokers. Um, but they but go back they, into they, the deck. They may go back into the deck, yeah. yeah.
0: And they may be on the bottom of the deck so they don't show right. up anymore, which is right. what happened to me. I remember one game where I held on to that joker waiting for that one time to use it. And then like a player used it. And I'm like, oh, man. Yeah. And, well, the, the, yeah. The
1: design intention is that um, you don't want everyone sitting on their joker till the last play. Yeah. And so, if there's a threat that it's going to get flushed out of your hand, you're probably not going to hold on to it for the whole from the beginning of the game, hoping that you'll have it at the end.
0: Which is exactly what what I did in the next game when I got a Joker's like, oh, I better drop this soon before I lose it. Right. Uh, so <laughs> that's a good uh, set of game design. Um, so the uh, also. Uh, Aside from the game mechanics, there's also the setting, which, uh, you know, there, you've written quite a bit, and it's a very interesting – it's a very open-ended setting, but, I mean, it's it's more fleshed out than, say, like a dungeon world or usually like, oh, they're – you know, the the trend now is just sort of describe things in vague terms, especially with indie ter- indie mm-hmm. games, mm-hmm. and just let everyone fill it in, fill in the blank, and – it's it's open ended, uh, but there is quite a bit defined in terms of the canon, in terms of like what what happens in the setting and what the various characters can do. Yeah, well the
1: truth is I'm not I've never thought of myself much as a game designer, so much as a setting designer. Mm-hmm. And that's where my uh favorite part of game making is, is in is in uh creating the setting. Uh and so um I, I tend to be setting heavy in, in the things that I write. I think there's uh, maybe 40,000 words of mechanics and, and, uh, well, no, sorry, um, maybe 30,000 words of mechanics and then something, um, that includes
0: examples, the- right?
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then, um, the, the total book right now is in the mid, um, 90,000. So, uh, there's quite a bit of, of setting for sure.
0: No, I, I'm, I'm sort of in the same way. I mean, base raiders, I, I had a superhero setting. And I wanted, I just looked at, found the first OGL superhero system that I thought was good enough for it. Uh, and that's what I used because I didn't want to make my own superhero game mechanics because sure. that that was, that was a can of worms I didn't want to open up. I'm not one of those, I mean, I mean, we all wish we could be Greg Stolze and be great at settings and game mechanics, right. but, uh, usually game designers seem to be better at one or the other. I mean, Caleb did, I think, did a knockout job. With red markets, but again, he also took years and years of iteration to do that mm-hmm. too. Um, and so, did the setting change over because of feedback from
1: playtests? Uh, um, I, I didn't so much change as I added things in because people okay. would say something or playtest, and i are like, "Oh, that's such a cool idea!" And then I would figure out where that best fit in the book and I'd slip it in. Um, I, I will admit, and and I um, I'm grateful to them. You hooked me up with technical difficulties. Mm-hmm. And uh, they did a play test, um, which I listened to and, and learned some things from and they They did suggest um that some of the language I was using could be considered uh, and I, I and I apologize i didn 't even think of it at the beginning but but a uh, sort of a you um, uh, used some of the terminology that would probably be associated with the colonialism of another era yeah um and and that certainly wasn 't the intention, and i didn't want it to be that way, but it was a nice catch on their part and um allowed me to change that vocabulary so that it, it hopefully will will not come across in, in that way. So that was um, an interesting uh, bit of setting change that you wouldn't kind of guess is, is a, a common part of feedback when you're designing a game.
0: Yeah, no, uh, but I mean, you never know uh, when you're designing a complex setting, you know, what the implications of a word are or uh, the, you know, there's always, there have been more... Um, I think Numenera, for example, has had some issues like that in the past and they have not. But they didn't catch it until it was published and it became an issue on Twitter. Uh, so that those kind of things do happen and it's good to have someone to catch it before you go to press, essentially. Uh, so uh, that's, yeah, again, very useful. Uh, yeah, and I don't, I don't want
1: to say. make people think that there was you know
0: some yeah. horribly racist thing in the game.
1: It was just the use of the word breed to describe um, ancestral uh, mm-hmm. lineages. Um, and being a, a biologist by training uh, that that fit into the genetics that I was thinking about, um, but they pointed out that that might not be the best term so uh, and I totally agree so um it 's now referred to as uh, ancestral lineage mm-hmm.
0: uh, and yeah and I- exactly it 's just uh, you don 't it 's also looking appearing not too archaic in certain ways, like sometimes. Uh, Some games get caught in a certain mode of thinking, and then you look back, and it's like, oh, you know. Um, Certainly a lot of the games uh, that we review in RPVR after hours have not aged very well, (laughs) and uh, you don't want to be caught in that mistake. Um, So it it sounds like the game itself is pretty much, I mean, aside from editing, and there's always polishing and minor revisions, it sounds like it's pretty much ready. Uh, yeah I,
1: I think it is uh, We are in in um, the second round of of editing uh, and when I say editing, I mean really just reading through it and trying to make sure that we are s- what we are trying to say is clear and being understood we 're not adding content to it um, and the only writing being done on it right now is are our, our ways to improve the quality of the communication um, and then uh we'll go into copy after that, uh where you know we'll really be looking at um what the what the um well, simple things like grammar and typos.
0: Right, right. Uh so I guess you have been more focused on of course as you mentioned, uh I think earlier to me, the that ever since Gen Con you've been pretty much focused on Kickstarter. Yeah. Uh, yeah,
1: well which- that was um a surprise and uh and an interesting a learning experience, but definitely a surprise. And yeah, um ever since getting back from Gen Con, it's almost been you know, we had we had finished up when by that time uh and and we part way through the editing and uh really have devoted ninety five percent of my time to to getting ready for the Kickstarter at this point.
0: Uh, so yeah, you have a rare sort of historical perspective of being, a, of knowing what the tabletop industry was like, you know, all the way back to the nineties to now. Um, so coming in with that, that sort of perspective, uh, you said it was very surprising. Uh, could you go? Uh, you, yeah, you made me sound like my dentures about ready to fall out. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. Yeah it,
1: was, yeah, it was, it was, it was interesting. And it wasn't that I, uh, I guess what makes it interesting for me, cause there's lots of people that have been around in this industry for a lot longer than I have, mm-hmm. but I was kind of out of it for a long time. So I didn't watch it sort of happen transitionally. Mm -hmm. I went from the old way of doing things to this whole undiscovered country of the new way of doing things. Um, and so I, I didn't learn as I went. I had to kind of cold turkey or, or deep end, whatever the metaphor is, Mm -hmm. um, learn it all at once. And again, thanks to you guys for, for being there as a, as, as a source of advice because you've helped a lot in, in, um, getting, getting my me, getting my bearings in, in the, the new way things are done.
0: Well also keep in mind I I was sort of I came in at the tail end of that. My first uh two books for Arc Dream Publishing were both they just they just paid for it and they just they were not crowdfunded. It was really uh, Kickstarter only started to become a thing in two thousand nine and didn't become sort of the industry standard until like Maybe 2011, something like that. Mm -hmm. Um, So really, we're looking in like the last five, six years that this has actually become a thing uh, in terms of like the standard of how tabletop games are made. And so, yeah, I was yeah, I was thinking from my own (laughs) career as well. It's like how do you get a book out? And it went from like give a manuscript to a publisher and hope for the best. And to this where the, the, you're not only a writer, you're a marketer and, uh, you are, uh, just a lot of marketing uh, and it's, it's a very specific type. Um, so like what's been like, are there any, any particular challenges you've, you've had to deal with? I mean, have you already recorded a video yet? Yeah, I did.
1: Um, that, that was fun too. (laughs) Uh, fun with quotes around it. Um, I, I mean, it was a fun process. I actually like editing video I've done done some in the past just for you know personal um projects and things just because i enjoyed it but um i i turns out i really don't like being in front of the camera uh, so we spent uh most of a saturday uh, a tech buddy of mine and i and and i'd written a little script and and all we were trying to do was film me in front of a green screen and uh it took several hours to get the takes down smooth and uh and, and that was, that was a, a lot of effort just to do that. And then we watched it. I'm like, wow, I am very wooden. <laughs> uh, I, I am accused by my, my students all the time of having um, an acute f- uh, case of rest, resting bitch face. Have you heard that, that term? Oh, yes, I have. I have. Yeah. Um, and it, it was bad in the video. Um, and, and in my, inside, I felt excited and I was happy, but I just couldn't get it in. And so we watched the video, and I actually edited it up, and I put all the the art into the green screen, and I put all the, the other material in, and and then uh, I was afraid we were going to not have enough time to to get other things for the Kickstarter done. But as those kind of fell into place, I I contacted my buddy and said, hey, I think I think you're right. I think we need the video over again because it's it's um, just really dry, and people aren't aren't responding to it very well. So. uh you'll you'll hear me say that and then you'll see the video and you think, wow, did they use the first version of that? and i'll show you now it's actually that's the much better version. <laughs> um I, I i think i smile a little bit and um i hope my enthusiasm comes across but just know that if you watch it and it looks like i'm i'm not enjoying myself i'm actually very ha- excited inside to be to be doing the project. um it's just that uh, i guess i'm not that good in front of the camera.
0: Well, I mean, and that's the thing is like authors now are, like I said, are are expected to be marketers and now, you know, uh, have on-screen presence and uh, in order to help, uh, like the more time and effort you spend into a Kickstarter video for a book is less time you have and less resources you have for the book itself. And and so there have been critics of, you know, the crowdfunding models like this is should not be the be all end all of tabletop gaming, Uh, you know, maybe... Uh, or at least expecting that the a slick video means a slick book, or if you don't have a slick video, it's not a slick book or for example. Right, right. Um, and, and, and there are workarounds, you know, like for arc dream, I've, I've done more, I've edited videos for them where we get a narrator and then I just sort of do a, you know, Ken Burns, mm-hmm. you know, slideshow of uh, still images. Right. Well, we did a
1: lot of that too. Um, It's just, <laughs> just that I was the one doing the reading. Yeah. Um, And, you know, I, there were opportunities to have people that were um certainly more professional and certainly more screenworthy uh but i did a lot of research and i and i kept coming across lots of people saying just make it personal if it mm-hmm. if it's if it's not going to be um you know some action packed movie trailer just get in there yourself and and let them know that you are really serious about the work you're doing uh and so i i decided to go that route okay it's also saves money, you know.
0: <laughs> well, that's the other thing too, is, you know, the, there's a whole reason why you're needing crowdfunding in the first part. Uh, and so you can't blame him. I mean, you do have great art though for, uh, the, the Kickstarter. You have gotten a lot of talented help for it.
1: Yeah, I'm popular. very pleased with that. Um, we got one artist, James Stowe. Um, he's a game designer in his own right. He's also a cartoonist and an illust- professional illustrator. He does sidekick quests, which is, uh, a combination online comic and role-playing game that, uh, teaches children how to play role-playing games. And he just did his own Kickstarter in the spring and will be coming out with his first, um, physical book of that product, um, shortly. Uh, but he's been doing all of the artwork for it and the plan is to have him do the, the entire book and it's, it's come out great. He's doing an amazing job. He's really pleased with his work. I'm super pleased with his work and we're really excited. In fact, I just posted a bunch of, um, The art that has come in, the same stuff we've put into the Kickstarter, I've just posted on our website today, um, just before this conversation, so that people could go there and check it out. Uh,
0: So, yeah, I mean, the artist, the art is obviously, especially for a tabletop game, is very important, uh, not only for the game itself, but obviously it's promotion because it helps people visualize um, the game. I mean, there's a lot of gamers out there. Uh, that really need art in order to understand, like, what a game's about, because reading a description of a skyship and how this art cannon works and th- et cetera, et cetera, is one thing, but then seeing the picture, oh, that's that, that's what the ship looks like, that's what an art cannon does to a monster, and okay, I get this game now.
1: Well, the old uh, adage is absolutely true, a picture's worth a thousand words, and that's a yeah. cliche, but it, you know, it's probably worth more than that in a role-playing game.
0: Uh, uh no, it, it was interesting, I was reading, <laughs> Uh, A while ago, a game, uh, I'm sure you've heard of Dark Conspiracy, which was uh, put out uh, by the company Game Center's Workshop, which we inadvertently ripped the title from uh, for our podcast series. But they uh, have, uh, it's a modern horror game and they had like half the book or a third of the book of this 400 page book are like guns and vehicles and pick and there's a picture for each one and the publisher says, yeah i don't know if we needed all of those but you know i want if i know if i'm using this particular type of gun i want to know what it looks like and i feel like a lot of gamers have that uh idea that if i if i'm using this type of sword or i'm using this type of ship i want to know what it looks like and uh so i can visualize it so um i think it's important it's also you know because you need it for the kickstarter just like so well yeah. and-
1: and that's the thing. I think there's a point that uh, I've learned. I mean, I, I've known that art sells game books. Uh, mm-hmm. Even back in the day before any kind of online presence, if you went to a game store and you opened a book and it was all text, you were much less likely to buy it than if it had lots of cool pictures. Yeah. And that's just translated into the digital world in spades. The, um, I think if you go through Kickstarter, even if you're not reading the projects, if you're one of those people that just kind of thumbs through them, it's the art that's going to get people to stop on the page. And probably more than anything, it's the art that'll get them to back it. Uh, And so it was really important to get enough of that done in time for the Kickstarter, uh, at least with regards to Upwind, especially because it's such an, a sort of an unorthodox setting.
0: Yeah, no, definitely. Uh, Especially I feel like, uh, I mean, there's some bits of art that I'm, I'm looking forward to seeing, which are like the maps to show sort of the vertical geography, of uh, Because, like, I, I have a general understanding of it after reading the setting, info- but, like, there's a lot of information about, like, the routes and the, the yep. travel times between the different
1: regions. We had really hoped to have that for the Kickstarter, but honestly, it's taking a ton of design time in addition. I mean, it's one thing to just draw a picture when you say, I need a guy with a, with a sword and a monster. But when you've got to design sort of the world in a way that allows you to create a navigator's chart.
0: Oh, that, um, that's that's a good point. Yeah. You know, like art that actually integrates in with the the written material. Um, so yeah, that's, and that's the point of this project. Yeah, yeah. So that's more of an art direction thing too. So that's kind of a challenge as a game designer. Like uh, you have your, you know, you get you ha- you need to have your cover art. Obviously, you need to have your killer images. But oh, this image is really important to the game. But like it's you have th- then you have all these constraints on what the image is because you know you either. um like, again, it's a map and there's like a very, sp- like, this kingdom is here. It's not by this kingdom. It's over this. Right, planet. right. Uh, so as a game designer, that's something you need to think about, you know, like, oh, it would be easy for the artist to do that. Well, the more constraints you put on the artist, the longer it's going to take them to do it. Um, that's, uh, that's, I hadn't thought about that. <laughs> yeah. I've done a lot of maps. I mean,
1: starting back with Blue Planet, actually starting back with Walker in the Waste, really. Mm-hmm. Um, in my pagan days, I did uh, maps for that and then did all the maps for Blue Planet and did the main map for Midnight um, because as the game designer, you're really the only one who knows where everything is. Yeah. And if you depend on the artist, well, first of all, most artists aren't going to have the time or if they do, they're going to charge you for it to have to read all that material to create good maps um, or, or accurate maps so it's a it's a big part that that process, even if it's just a sketch that you can then give to an artist to do a better job um like with midnight um, then it it's it's something that the game designer really has to do, and for some people for me anyway, it takes longer than than writing probably an equivalent amount of words mm
0: mm-hmm. That's, that's a good point. Um, Caleb, I think, is in, I've been talking to him re- recently about, and he's talking about doing art direction for red markets. Cause, you know, he wants a piece of art every, you know, six pages or something mm-hmm. like that. And like, he's linking, he's trying to link it to the text of every section. So he's like, I need to write it. Then I need to tell the artist what to draw. Right. And then, it's like, tough. yeah, it, it, it is tough. And it's something, um, like he recently uploaded a picture of a character using UVX specs, which are augmented reality. You know, I saw Google that glasses. Yeah. yeah. And so that must have been a very time-consuming picture to draw. Yeah, no yeah. kidding. And to art direct it was probably yeah. three thousand words. Yeah, so you really need to, uh, or a lengthy conversation over Skype. Sure. Uh, so that, yeah, no, it, it's uh, there's a lot of things in in creating light. Like, that's probably one of the reasons why it's taken this long to get the Kickstarter ready to go. Um, was this time also for doing it in October? Was this just because? this is the earliest you could do it after Gen Con, or is this planned well in advance?
1: No, it was, it was planned in advance. Um, it, the, I did a lot of research, and I, I guess if I learned one thing about researching Kickstarter is that for every um, cer- certainty that you find, every, every pundit who says this is absolutely the best way that something works on Kickstarter, you can easily find another pundit of equal reputation who says exactly the opposite. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, it was... One of the few consistent things was sort of the pattern of the rise and fall and success of Kickstarter mm-hmm. uh, with regards to the summer months. Mm-hmm. Um, and I mean, and uh, there
0: are still successful ones during that period. There are. yeah,
1: uh, But the the success rates do go down pretty dramatically. Um, what they seem to disagree about is why. But ultimately, the, the statistics show that they still do. Um, I didn't want to wait all the way through to January. Um, I, I was trying to – I'm a school teacher by day job and trying to run a game company on, on the side requires that I kind of go with the ebb and flow of the school year. Um and October slash November is a pretty good time. It's not the the hottest time. The hottest time seems to be January, February mm-hmm. for Kickstarters. Um but it's it's way better than the summer. Um and and um probably the, the second or third or best time of the year to do it. So it, that's really why we targeted it.
0: Uh, yeah, I think the main things are avoid major holidays and avoid time. Yeah, avoid the summer if you can. It's not, it's not an automatic death sentence, obviously. Uh, but. Yeah. This time there's no, people aren't vacation. They're, they're at work or they're at school. They're not so busy that by holidays. Uh So there, there seems to be a lot. I mean, that's the thing is also, uh you raise a really good point in that no one knows <laughs> for sure what, what every, every success story is unique with crowdfunding, Uh not just Kickstarter, but you know, other Indiegogo and uh, those other kind of sites because it's still a super new field. Like I said, it's only been in the last five years. It's become the popularity yeah. of a, uh, crowdfunding.
1: Um, well, I would recommend anybody considering doing a Kickstarter of their own um, really do some research. Yeah. I'm not going to – I certainly wasn't exhaustive in mine, but I did a lot more than I tend to for most most things I undertake um, in a positive way. Uh, mm-hmm. I just didn't – I just knew that I knew so little about it that I had to – to spin myself up a little more. And you guys have been pretty valuable. Caleb's given me a lot of good advice. Um, I bent everybody's ear at Gen Con and everyone else that I've been meeting, um, that has been associated with Kickstarter. I've sent out drafts and drafts of, of the Kickstarter page to lots of different folks and asked for their input and, and gotten it, um, and been able to include that. But really I would recommend doing, doing some real research. There's a couple of uh, particularly good blogs out there that have done some objective, um, Comparisons and statistics. There's a lot of people who have been really successful and are sharing w- what they did. They're not claiming that you know this is how it works, but they're saying this is what they did and, and this is what the results were. So really, spend some time trying to get to understand what what the product uh, how how do you, how do you t- best use it for for games in particular if that's what you're trying to kickstart.
0: Yeah, no, exactly. And uh, I think there are a lot of different varied ways to run a successful Kickstarter, uh, like. For example, uh, you know, I, last month I interviewed Monty Cook about Invisible Son, and if I, if you, one, if you took the Monty Cook's name off of that and you just showed me that, uh, I would have been like, that I do not think will make it. But also, Monty Cook did a good job because of his reputation, and I think because of how well he ran the Kickstarter, which was also very unusual. He had puzzles embedded, and he had all these, oh yeah, yeah social yeah, yeah. media goals, and I think, uh, and that's kind of an unusual way of doing it. But I think. Um I think the only thing is the the one thing I do want to say is the reason why you want to do all this research is also to avoid making mistakes because I think there's a there's a lot of different ways to succeed but all the it seems all the failures have a lot in common. Yeah, and, I think that's a yeah. really that's a really astute point. Yeah. Uh so did you learn about did you like see by doing this research, learn of any particular mistake. Oh, I should jump over that landmine. Yeah. Uh,
1: Well, I I think the one that everyone keeps, you know, there's, well, I don't really have a lot. Oh crap. Yeah. I do have one piece of advice. Be careful about shipping. Like everybody (laughs) was like, be careful about shipping, include the shipping, make sure there's plenty of shipping. Yeah. Don't trust the shipping calculators. Make sure there's plenty of shipping. Um, because you know, there's the big stories of chaosium and such and, Mm -hmm. and trouble they had with it, but it, it is expensive to ship and it's an, it's, it's not that people forget about it, but I think they, they don't think about the logistics of, um, well, if they've ordered two books or if they're in another country or,
0: mm-hmm. um, or if they've know, ordered if, two books in a def-
1: another country. Right. Or am I going to ship everything at once? Right. Um, that's going to affect my delivery dates, but also my shipping costs if I'm, if I'm shipping it separately. And so there's a lot to be thought about with regards to shipping because it, it is expensive.
0: Uh, yeah, no, I, I, um, I do follow these tabletop sort of blogs too. Um, And there's also Facebook groups and there's other message boards and email lists and all these other things. Uh, There's sort of a community about it. And some of the things I I found is aside from, yeah, I mean, the shipping thing is kind of a hidden thing because that's not going to sink or uh, usually won't sink your Kickstarter success, but it will screw you over later on whether or not you're going to actually make a profit. Uh, but I think some of the things, you know, for example, do a video, but make sure, you know, that it has shows that you care and that you're like paying attention to details. I think if you did a if you did a video just to say you've done a, just to have that video and it's just you you're using your phone and saying hey while you're walking down the street hey give me money see you you know that would be more that would be worse than not having a video at all. Yeah, I don't think that's exactly.
1: beneficial at all. For uh, sure.
0: So. I think I, – I mean, because when I see failed Kickstarters, I see a lot of the same – the factors, you know, and a lot of them are, you know, they have no projects – either not even backed and zero created. There's no biography in the user account. So you don't know who this person is. They say, Oh yeah, no, we'll in risks and challenges. They'll say, yeah, no, we got it. We'll do this. We're really excited. We will give We will 100% promise. Like "Mm, you have, you don't have a track record. Why should I trust you?
1: Yeah. A lot of the advice um, I've I've been reading talks about not launching until you're ready. Mm -hmm. And I think there's, there's some, hidden versions of what, what ready means. Yeah, I, I think you have to have a, a lot of text.
0: Yeah,
1: Not so much that you're overwhelming people, but their basic questions have to be answered about your project. Yeah. And it has to be good text. I can't tell you how many Kickstarters I look at that have misspellings or missing words mm-hmm. um, or are just poorly written. And of course those are the ones with almost no backers. Yeah. Um, you've got to have plenty of visual appeal um there's got to be art or at least an interesting layout um that's going to draw people in and represent your project um in in a way that is is visually appealing to them i think the i, I don't know about the video when i first started thinking about doing this way back um even before i um met you guys i was thinking ah, i don't know if i want to do a video uh and but then just reading a um Kickstarter's own advice in their Kickstarter campus, I guess they call it, their training mm-hmm. campus. They talk about you got to have a video. It doesn't have to be fancy, but you got to have one. And they give some basic advice on how to do it. But I think you're right. I think um, the 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 cleaner and um, more – when I say polished, I don't m- mean it has to be necessarily professional. Mm-hmm. But the the more effort you have clearly put into to your video, that helps. I think the more effort you've put into the whole thing seems to help. Yeah. Um, I'm not speaking from personal experience, since this is the first one I've I've run on my own, but but I, I do think that it's going to come across um, much better. One thing that I will also warn people about that was a surprise to me, at least in its current iteration, it is a not a difficult interface to use, but it's not very robust. So you can't do actual if you're used to doing layout with something like InDesign. You can't do it. If you're oh, used yeah, to no. using like Squarespace to make everything just look just right on your web page, you can't do it. There's certain things that when you load it up, that's how it's going to be. And you've got to, um, sort of jury rig it to make it the right size. You got to jury rig it to put it in the right place. Um, but it takes a lot of time. You can't just throw it up. You can't collect all the pieces and throw it up in a couple of hours. Now, I've been extremely surprised at how long it's taken me to get the page to, to, at least as good a version as I think I can do, mm-hmm. and I uh, and it's not it's still not as you know ideal, perhaps as, as some of the, the fancier projects, but but it takes a lot of effort to get to get the page um, set up.
0: Uh yeah no it, it does I mean it's it's a very and the the Kickstarter is back in they're constantly tinkering with it and kind of change the staff is very they're very eager to maximize their own profits. I mean, they they want to have as many projects to see succeed as possible. So they, they're constantly tinkering with things to see if they can improve the backend for creators and also to make the web pages look better and be more discoverable by search engines and all this other stuff. Uh, so uh, it, it, even, you know, if you listen to this interview a year from now, the, the Kickstarter interface might be vastly improved or might be changed, not worse, but different, you know, right. it, it, it's, uh, a work in progress. I mean, Kickstarter, I I was on Kickstarter in 2009 and it was very different than what it is now. And um, I think the main thing is though, uh, I mean, you've also looked at other projects and I'm probably sure you backed projects. Uh, yeah.
1: Hundreds of hundreds of products. I've looked at hundreds of them and I've backed, you know, I had advice from somebody a, a, quite a long time ago when I was first just thinking about this, not really deciding I was going to publish up when they said, yeah, if you're going to back, um, gonna back if you're gonna run a Kickstarter and you haven't backed any, people aren't gonna take you seriously.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And that was really good advice. Um, I I love the idea of crowdfunding. There's something about it that appeals to me, like the the sort of um, sort of post DIY uh, nature. Yeah, well, the DIY nature, but like you're reaching out to to the actual people that want your your product or that might want mm-hmm. your product, and they're telling you by backing it or not that they want your product. Um, it, like it, it just feels like a post scarce, one of the elements of like a post scarcity economy, right? Like, yeah. um, where, where you're, where you're finally using the technology, um, rather than to take advantage of people through advertising to actually cut through all of that and give them what they want and ask them for their input as you're doing it. Right. Yeah. And there's something about that really appeals to me, especially in, in the world of game design. Um, so I was all about it, but I, I didn't think I'd better have a presence on there before I start. Asking for backers of my own, and mm-hmm. and uh, it's been great because I've ended up getting a lot of really cool games as a result. But <laughs> I've been really uh, in- intentional about backing um, game products that I really liked. Uh,
0: yeah, no, I I back things now. Um, I back it, probably one or two projects a month now. Uh, just I just fi- I just got the notification that um, Greg speaking as Greg Stolzey, that I, I uh, his Kickstarter for a uh, uh, short story anthology. Succeeded, and I, you know, backed it at a level to get a copy of the book. Um, but I think one of the things, uh, my point was, like when you're when you're looking at projects, there are projects you've looked at that you're like, mm, I don't want to, uh, I don't want to back it, or you're, or there are even ones that you're kind of on the fence. Maybe I should, maybe I'm not. And I've I've had the the same kind of experience. And for me, uh, let me know if this is different for you. For me, my my biggest indication of whether or not I'll back a project is whether I think. You know, one, whether I will get the thing that they promise. You know, one, one is this the thing that I want to pay for? And two, am I actually going to get it? Uh, and I think that's what a Kickstarter page has to communicate. You want this thing uh, or you want this thing to happen and you believe these people will do it. So... Every misspelling, every bad video, everything detracts yeah. from that that sort of impression. Whether they can't even do a video, if they can't even copy edit a page, yeah. Yeah. how are they going to deliver a game?
1: Is that I think if you I think if you get um, the equivalent of sort of bad body language, right? Yeah. If there's something about it that is off, you're you're not going to think well. I, they can't deliver a professional product yeah for sure in fact i, I wasn't even thinking in those terms that when i look at kickstarters mostly what i'm thinking is do i want to play this game <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah do um, i want the thing you know? yeah
1: yeah um and then i i guess i, I just haven't really f- flipped it on its ear but w- if i did I, I think i agree with you that that if i was looking at them in a different light like is this one going to deliver mm-hmm. um i guess i'm already doing that just
0: not quite
1: um as as intentionally as as might otherwise but yeah i agree
0: with you um, I mean for me it 's that, that that second question in, do, are these people going to deliver, has actually kind of evolved over time a couple of years ago. I was not thinking nearly as much about that, uh, but I realized recently I was started of reviewing what i backed on Kickstarter. i've started thinking about it, like wait a minute, like video games I almost never back video games anymore simply because I, it's not, it 's not not necessarily ones that i've backed, but i 've seen so many stories of video game Kickstarters that have under delivered or fallen apart. Uh, and there have been some projects I have that are like extremely late, like the new Monera video game. Uh, I back that kickstar- Kickstarter and that game is, it's almost out, but it's not quite out. Right. And, right. Well, it uh, feels like video games are a lot, uh,
1: have a lot more variables than yeah than a, a, a print. That's true. No, I mean, and
0: we're talking about tabletop games,
1: but sure. I mean, well, the, the point yeah. is, I think, I think that that's part of the risk, right? Is this yeah. a product that has easily defined borders? Like here's the page count. Here's yeah. the size of the book. Here's how much it costs to print. I only need these many people working on it. Whereas video games, there seems to be, you know, everything's fluid and the, the yeah. engines are changing and the technology is changing and it's a lot harder to predict what's going to cost. And
0: No, definitely, definitely. And, I think, and even I, I have been burned uh, in some Kickstarters, and in some cases, uh, it was. I mean, in like at least one, in one case, it was because of Ken Whitman, who is a con artist who, you know, just took everyone's money. But I trusted the person who was. I thought it was a. I didn't even look at it that closely. He's like, "Oh, it's uh, Jolly Blackburn. It's nice to the dinner table. I, I, I trust that guy." So I threw him twenty bucks to make the web series, um, and then there have been some cases where I just. You know, the product hasn't delivered um, or has under delivered. And, uh, but overall, my success rate, I think, is about 90, 95% of the projects I've backed are successful. But that's because I, I t- I've become a lot pickier over time. And so I think Kickstarter is, and I think a lot of backers are like that now, especially gamers, because we're sort of like, you know uh, i wouldn't say the alpha nerds but like we're the ones ahead of the curve we're like oh th- there's a new thing let's go check it out sure and sure. so they're, they're if you're a game designer you have to be able to like deal with people who've you've seen so many other kickstarters implode because of shipping problems you know or that they um and and there are sometimes when there are questions where you're like some people will ask questions like, "Oh, this is too expensive. I I don't want this. You know, you should charge half of this for this product." And there's sometimes where you just kind of have to, you know, deal with negative feedback. Um, but on the other hand, you you kind of I've seen some Kickstarters fails because they overprice. You know, like, "Oh, it's fifty dollars for a PDF of a game." All right, right. Like, yeah. And you're just like, mm, "I don't think that's a good idea."
1: Uh, so it's well, it, that's it's, and it's that's true. the. That's been a, um, a recommendation too that I would offer. Uh, have lots of people look at, mm-hmm. um, your, at your project, at your campaign, all right? Specifically not, not the game perhaps, well that, that too, right? You want lots of playtesters or whatever, but we're talking specifically about Kickstarters. Mm-hmm. Um, have them look at your reward levels and, um give you uh, their experience on on sort of the the financial end of things and um are these going to be appealing are you going to be able to make on the things you want uh Caleb gave me some good advice about the price of our campaign book that we were they were pitching and and so we um actually upped that a little bit because of his his feedback so yeah i think it's it can be really valuable if that, if what you're trying to do is make a solid campaign that will not only work financially but will people will look at and 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 know that it, it's reliable.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, and getting and getting help. Um, I mean, aside from RPPR, and you know, uh, you've also uh, you've recently partnered with uh, Nocturnal Media uh, to talk about this. Uh, yeah,
1: I wanted to make sure I, I had a chance to talk about that. Um, I, I I'm really excited that we just went official with it a, a few weeks ago. But um, Biohazard Games and Nocturnal Media are now officially partnered up to publish Upwind. Um uh, for those people that don't know Nocturnal Media is, uh, it's it's Stuart Wick's new company. Um he is the co-founder of uh White Wolf and the co-creator of the World of Darkness series. And uh, he's been out of the role playing game industry for a while, but has has come back um and and um with a new company and uh it's gonna be our publishing partner. So it's been a great boon to the to the Upwind project, um, probably most notably in our our ambitions for it. My uh, original intention was to to do much what I think Caleb started out to do. Uh, we would start with a, a, a modest goal to get um, a print-on-demand version of the Upwind core book. Um, and it, it with Stewart's involvement, with Nocturnal Media's involvement, it has, has expanded into um, not only a full-color hardcover version of the core book with um, actually a collector's edition cover for for higher-end backers – but um as part of the product not as stretch goals but actually as part of the product line there will be um a custom deck of playing cards uh since the game is driven by um uh, standard uh poker cards there'll be a, a product called the Knight's deck which will be um a a deck of of uh playing cards embossed with uh, upwind art um that actually has uh, auxiliary really use as a, as a um a schematic map of the of the upwind setting um That'd be really fun to play with. You'll be able to lay out the cards based on a coordinate system and kind of build the whole world of Upwind with oh, wow. the dif- with the different um, pieces of art and the descriptions of the art, uh, giving you an idea of of the layout of of the of these of the setting. And then uh, then the second um, part or the third part of that. Um, so the core book, the Nights Deck, and then the uh, Prophecy, of the Grand Amplifier, the the campaign book of forty five to fifty thousand word um, kind of setting spanning campaign. Um, those all three of those will be part of the actual um, product production, not part of the stretch goals. So if we make and 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 um, if we make the the funding goal, then we'll be able to produce all three of those. And with, that would be impossible without Stuart's help and backing.
0: Wow, uh, that uh, sounds very uh, sounds like a good deal for uh, people. Um, I know. Well, speaking of stretch goals, though, uh, I know I'm uh, going to be one of the like planning stretch goals. Is kind of an art in itself because there's sort of the dilemma of like not, you want to have, you usually, if you, you either don't want to have any at all. Cause you're just like, I want to make one thing and that's it. Or if you want stretch goals, then you kind of have to plan them very carefully because you certainly want to be, have them spaced out enough that they keep building momentum for the campaign. So you can get more and more backers. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you don't want them uh, so small that like they, you, they don't produce the thing that they're, Saying, you know, like, yeah, well, you talked yeah. about landmines, and I think that's yeah. a big one. If you, yeah. if your
1: goal stretch goals are too ambitious and you haven't really budgeted yeah. for them, uh, it, it can be super problematic on delivering them.
0: Uh, I know Caleb, you know, when he was talking about planning red Redmark, is, is that he would sort of have some stretch goals that were very cheap to produce, so and then everything was spaced out evenly, but some of these cheaper ones were subsidizing the more expensive ones, mm-hmm. so like it would be cheap, cheap, expensive. So, like, by the time you got to the expensive, everything was balanced out. Uh, but if you just got to the cheap's, then you're actually ahead of the game because you're not quite at the expensive level. Right. Right. Um, is is that kind of the strategy you're approaching, or you're you're doing more like everything is balanced, uh, uh, just in of itself?
1: Well, um, with our stretch goals, there's there's two physical products in the stretch goals. Mm-hmm. And they're relatively inexpensive. Um, they're both posters. One is the, uh, post, physical poster of the, of the setting navigational chart. Mm-hmm. And the other will be sort of like a classic ship ID, um, know your enemy vessel kind of, um, poster with all the different kinds of ships of the kingdoms in the light and the children of the dark. Um, and then everything after that are, um, the other products interspaced with the interspersed with those are all PDF delivery. So the expense is, is relatively low. Yeah. Um, there, the, the thing that is expensive about them is, uh, the time that's going to be gone, gone into producing them.
0: Right. Labor. Um,
1: one, one is a miniatures game called incursion, which is, a it will be a, a miniatures like game using, um, tokens, uh, print and play, um, that takes, um, uh, the war between the, the aerial war, the, sh- the ship to ship war between the children of the dark and the, uh, explorer knights, um, basically to your local tabletop. Um, and we've been playing testing that for a while. Uh, it's pretty fun, pretty straightforward, pretty, pretty action packed and, and very simple to play. Um, but we're hoping we make that stretch goal because I think it would just be really fun to work on that.
0: Yeah. And that, that also is actually puts you in a good position because then you can, like, one thing is also leave yourself open. Like, oh, well, if you really like Incursion, maybe, you know, once we get all this done, we could do another one for minis or a full. Well, insertion. in fact, that's already been part
1: of the conversation. When, oh, yeah. I, when I was first, first joined up with Stuart and I was telling him what the ideas for the stretch goals were, he goes, Hey, you know what? We should, we should include that one. And then maybe we can make an actual, um, you know, boxed game out of it, uh, in a, in a subsequent release. So I think that would be, that would be fun. And one of the reasons I hope it makes so that we can actually see if people like it. Cool. cool. Uh, uh, and I, up- yeah, sorry. And then the other the other big stretch goal is an alt setting for the uh cue mechanics um mm-hmm. called TikTok that's been floating around in the back of my head and I thought that would be fun to to offer up as another way to play with the with the same mechanics.
0: Uh yeah, no, the mechanics are re- really fun. Um I've had my own ideas for a uh my own setting for the Q mechanics uh, universe. One of the things I, when I was reading up, I was like, oh man, these mechanics are great. I'd really like to, like, I realized I could have run Masks of Nyar Lothotep in like two months, you know, instead of a year uh, <laughs> with that uh, if I had had Q, if I had had the Q system available. Um, yeah, so. it's
1: definitely quick, that's for sure.
0: <laughs> uh, so I'm quite excited about it. Um, and of course, if there one stretch goal, is for. Me to write my mini campaign as an adventure for uh, Upwind the Three Beasts uh, 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 game. Uh, so if you want to, if you like the actual plays, uh, try and get to that stretch goal and I'll be happy to write it up uh, as a proper adventure for Q and Of course, that would give players more, and GMs more of an idea of how an adventure written for. Uh, upwind should look like because it's very different uh, than a standard adventure because you don't really have to stat out specific monsters or things.
1: Yeah, it is. Um, and I'm, and I'm working on what that format should look like. Actually, I've been doing, um, about the only writing I've been doing these days, um, outside of prepping the Kickstarter is, um, doing, um, a sort of a formal outline for the campaign book for the prophecy of the grand amplifier. And I'm realizing that one of the essential ingredients is going to be, um, Optional stakes, like providing suggested stakes for the different situations that the characters find themselves in, um, which I think would make it um, – would provide not only uh, options for game masters that are, are having a, a trouble being maybe creative in that moment, but also inspiration for versions of their own that they might want to create. Um, and I think that's going to be – make it read very differently than a typical um, published adventure.
0: Wow. Uh, yeah. No, that's really cool. Uh, yeah. Because thinking that's actually one of the challenges of running up when is thinking of good stakes on the fly. And I, I wrote out some stakes ahead of time uh, in order to uh, basically have those at the right. I could look at my was like, oh, yeah, that would be good. I'll use that. And then, of course, the guidelines were very helpful as well uh, to sort of give me ideas of like because you don't want to use the same kind of stakes over and over again like this will give them a bonus this will give you a bonus Those, you know right you, right you kind of I've want noticed yeah I don't
1: know if what your experience was but I've noticed the more I've run it yeah um the the stakes sort of become uh you get better at it and I mean I guess that's self evident right you get better at anything at practice but I mean the, the stakes that you run at the beginning of um, a a single evening session um by the end of the session you're sort of inspired by what's already been happening and mm-hmm. it's actually c- quite fun and easy to come up with more stakes because the energy kind of carries you away mm-hmm. uh, which i guess i wouldn't have expected if i you know in in my sort of original conception of the game
0: uh well also i think in in upwind especially you want to like it's about storytelling so you wanted like satisfy narrative like like arcs you want to like make callbacks to like oh remember that thing i mentioned a while ago let's go ahead and resolve that you know like oh who's that crazy person you you know the beggar oh well he turns out to be assassin let's have the assassin attack now and uh so we can you know that's not he's not just lurking in the background forever so you kind of i think that's part of the urge is like well we're getting towards the end. We, we don't want to have unresolved you know plot holes or anything. Right, so right. let's go ahead and close everything up that we can. Yeah. Well,
1: um, it's also conducive to that. I mean, yeah. in mean, its in its nature, this, in the stakes based nature, it, it lets you do that um, yeah. pretty easily.
0: Um. So speaking, so before we end the interview, uh, has there been any particular anecdote or any particular plays that play or stakes that players have announced that have surprised you or sort of like led to interesting moments. Um, I mean, because aside from... You've been playtesting the game a lot. I mean, not just, you know, yeah. with your own group, but with, yeah. with other cons and Gen Con and online groups. Um, so have there been um, any particularly good? Uh, I, feel, I feel like there have been, but being
1: on the spot now, I can't think of them. <laughs> um, there were a couple in your game that I listened to that I thought were pretty... Pretty awesome. Um, can I can I hint at a couple of them? Uh, yeah, no. I, yeah, go ahead. Uh, there was there well, there was the one when. Uh, uh, um,
0: don't mention player names though. Maybe just okay. a Particular. So somebody got married. Yeah, <laughs> that was. I was thinking of that too.
1: Which actually, I don't. I don't know if you had had been inspired by that. that but that was one in in the text of the of the documents.
0: That I'm was sure. it. Was I specifically that like I, yeah. that I was talking about the guidelines Being were helpful. was them.
1: one of the profound. I think they call yeah. them profound stakes or something. Yeah. Right? life-changing stakes.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, and that was one of them. And I was, I was gratified to see that somebody actually got married. Yeah. <laughs> okay,
0: that was. Uh, Yeah. So that happens. And when, I don't know if that's, if that particular episode is going to be posted by the time this goes live. Uh, But if not, that's something to keep, uh keep track of Uh, in the comments, maybe post who you think would, which player <laughs> would get married. Uh, and I think it's uh, fun. Yeah. What I've, what I, I think, maybe not
1: an individual idea that I can, I can remember or an individual event that I can remember, but the stakes that I'm finding I enjoy the most are the ones that provide emotional load for the characters. Mm-hmm. Um The ones where, yeah, what you're trying to do, you'll succeed, but at this huge cost and you'll be guilty about it for the rest of your life, it'll wake you up with nightmares, that sort of thing. Um Those, those sorts of stakes uh really seem to get the players uh worked up, in a in a an excited positive way, really wanting to win the the bid. Yeah, um, and so I've I've noticed that a lot in the recent play tests.
0: Um, yeah, and speaking of, back to my play tests, I know one of the in one of the scenarios, one of the players, uh, well, you can do this to stop the bad guy, or you could uh, go with the bad guy on a journey to help them, uh, because maybe this bad guy is really just misunderstood. But your character is going to just go away. Like, you're not going to be here. You're going to have to make a new character because you're not dead, but you're sure, sure as hell not going to be, you know, with the Explorer Knights anymore because you're going off on this very long journey. And he was like, oh, no, no, my character believes that this bad guy can be redeemed. Uh, So I'm going to do that. And uh the player was totally fine. I was, I was like, all right, you know, that's fine. Yeah, well, and, and you
1: mentioned just now you're not going to be dead, but, you know, the way the game works, you you will know before you agree to stakes whether there's a chance of your character dying. Yeah. And um I can't think of another game where that's sort of uh an expectation of what you're agreeing to when you roll the dice, right? Mm-hmm. Uh and, and that's been an interesting um dynamic in the game as well. Yeah,
0: I think players are more fine with death if they feel like it's fair, like, you know, like I made the play, I pushed it. They you chose know, a dramatic yeah. exit. Yeah. Uh, I had a player... I know there was one... At one point in the game, there's like, if you succeed, your character will take a mortal wound, which means your character could die as a result of this. That's if you succeed. I know. I remember yeah. that. play. And the player's like, yeah, no, it's worth it. To, because I, obviously it wasn't just that they took the mortal wound. Other things would happen right, right, that right. would justify it. But the player was like, yeah, no, I it's worth doing those other things to risk my character's death. Uh, and yeah so and then of course when that character when that happens like wait can i can i make a play i want to try and save him before it's too late okay well it's going to be really high and uh you know the, if you fail then something really really even worse is going to happen it's like it's okay i'm going to risk it <laughs> you know and so uh yeah no it worked um and so yeah i i think it's a very satisfying game so uh upwind is on kickstarter now uh, at least the first time you're listening to this, if you're not listening <laughs> to this it, far in the future, uh, and, uh, just probably looking forward to working with you. Uh, so, oh yeah, I'm, I'm excited. It'll be fun. All right. Uh, I'll talk to you guys next
1: time.